Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and improve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men but from God. And Father, we do thank you for this passage. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we navigate this text. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and guide us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we enter this text, we we always sort of have to, to keep the bigger picture of Romans in mind. The first seven verses are Paul's introduction. He says who he's writing to. Uh, he's writing to the believers in Rome in chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, we know that in verse 1 that it's Paul the Apostle who writes it. And he introduces himself to this body of believers. Paul writes from Corinth, which is modern-day Greece. Uh, he'd never met the people in the, the church in Rome. He'd heard a lot about them. He rejoiced and gave thanks to God in his prayers for them. He desires to see them. He'd long to get there to to share the gospel there, to introduce himself, to establish a relationship. Rome was a strategic city. They'd said that uh, the saying that um, all roads lead to Rome, that because Rome had conquered the world, uh, the soldiers had created these Romes that they could travel and disperse rapidly all around the known world very quickly, that Paul saw it just the opposite case, that if, if all roads lead to Rome, that means that Rome leads to the whole world. And if he could get there and and transform the body of Christ there, he could get the, the gospel out to the whole world. And as he established this relationship, he tells them that he hopes that they would take a, a love offering, that they would um, help fund his trip to Spain where he wanted to get. Ultimately, he wanted to get to the outermost part of the world, which was Spain at that time, that had heard not of the gospel. And Paul wanted to get there. And so he writes this letter that Charles Swindoll and others have often referred to as as the Christian constitution. Uh, Romans is very linear in thought. It's almost as if an attorney is writing out a defense of the gospel, that grace 
the grace of the gospel is on trial and Paul is defending it. He's pleading his case. And as he pleads his case in the first three chapters from chapter one, verse 18, all the way to Romans chapter three, 23, he's making the case that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the first chapter, he addresses the hedonist, the person who is free from constraints of religion or God or anything like that. They simply live for themselves. They, they want to live in the flesh. They go by the saying that we have in America, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's not biblical. But that was the attitude here. And Paul, at the end of chapter 1, verse 32, he says, these things are worthy of death. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, he addresses the moralist, not necessarily grounded in religion, but one who, apart from God in their own uh, analyzing the world, they know that there's an absolute right and wrong. And so they begin judging humanity and they've segregated themselves by being a good person. They don't need God. You just need to be good. And so Paul begins addressing them. And now in verses 17 through the end of chapter 2, Paul addresses what I would call the religionist. That's not a word. I made it up, and I'm not afraid to make up words. But he's addressing the Jew. Um, He says in verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew, this if is a first-class condition in the Greek, which probably doesn't mean anything to most of us. But the word if in the English, it's literally something that's sort of uh, contingent. I say, well, if... If you do this, then I'll do that. So there's sort of a play. In the Greek, it's not as clear. There's about five different conditions of, of, of conditional statements. And this is what's called a first-class condition. And it means if and you are. It means in the affirmation. Sometimes the word is translated since. So Paul, it, it's not that they might be Jewish. He's clearly segregating and calling out his fellow Jewish brethren. He says, but if you bear the name Jew... And the first thing I need to clear off the table is this is not an anti-Semitic sort of statement. Uh, So often in America and around the world, uh, when it comes to Jesus' dying, we blame the Jews. And the Jews are these bad people that killed Jesus and they did all of this stuff. The Bible is very Jewish from Genesis to Revelation. Paul is a Jew writing to his fellow countrymen. As we skip forward into Romans, we get to Romans chapter 9, the first five verses. In this section, as Paul begins to address Israel, he says that he loves his fellow brethren so much that if it was up to him, if he had the option, he would trade his salvation and go to hell if it meant that his fellow countrymen would accept Christ and be saved. I know very few Americans, I know very few, any nationalities that an individual would say, you know what, if given the choice, I would take hell if my fellow countrymen accepted Christ. That's love. That's, that's love like Jesus. That, so we know that this isn't a derogatory statement. Paul loves his people. The Bible speaks highly of Israel and Hebrew people. God's not done with Israel. And I'm really excited about this trip to Israel that we have like 11 people from the church going. That's a huge percentage of our actual church body. And so one of the things in in light of seeing the sights and the sounds and the locations in Israel that we see in the Bible, one of the things that my heart is, is to introduce the people from our church to the Jewish culture and the Jewish people 
and that we would develop a love like Paul for the Hebrews. Now, this week I got sick. My head, I feel like I'm in a closet right now. And uh, this is sort of one of these passages that's dealing all. Paul is clearly addressing a Jewish person. And so from Wednesday night when I took the NyQuil, I was pretty much in bed till Friday. But I, by Wednesday, as a pastor, my world, I've got this constant ticker going in my head. It's like a, a countdown timer that explodes Sunday at 830. And I'm tossing and turning in bed, and I'm like, oh, this is like a difficult text. I'm like, I'm, uh, like it's dealing totally and completely with Jewish, Jewishness. We don't have any Jewish people, really, in our church. Like, how does this apply? Well, we have Mary in the first service, and I said, well, Mary, we know that you come from Jewish lineage. And she's like, well, there's always one token Jew in everything. Had everybody laughing. Well, well, Becca's here, uh, Rick Restivo's daughter, and her mom is Jewish, and she comes from, uh, you know, a Jewish family. And so, so I told her, I'm like, well, you're going to, is it okay if we bring it up? Because, you know, she said that there's always one token Jew, and it looks like you're it. She's like, no, that's great. Like, I'm okay being the token. And, uh, and so there's something special about Jewishness, and Paul is, Paul is going to address this. In, in our culture, in our world, and in, in, in more modern history, the term Jew took on a very derogatory term, a slang. It was, it was a, a demeaning statement, but Paul isn't using it at all in this way. So how did the term Jew come to appear? Well, through all of the Old Testament, the, the Jewish people were always referred to as either Hebrews or Israelites. That as their nation was emerging, you have uh, Saul becomes king, then David takes over. God appointed David as king. As David was initiated king of Israel, he was used in a mighty way to unite the nation. That the, the north and the south, the, the 12 tribes were united under his reign. He conquered militarily all of the nations around him. And as he died, Solomon came to power, his son the son of Bathsheba, he came to power under great stability. He was the wealthiest man, and and he basically, in his day, he lived under a great season of peace, uh, prosperity, and he was able to just sort of indulge in life. He had great wisdom. And through, I think God used Solomon in in many ways to give us Ecclesiastes and and Proverbs and this great wisdom. Uh, Not that he was a perfect man. He made plenty of mistakes, but he shares his wisdom with us. And then as Solomon died, the kingdom went to his son, who was a fool. And as his son took the realm, he went to his father's advisors. And his father's advisors gave him wisdom on how to handle the nation. And he basically said, that's foolish advice. And so as he take, took the reign of Israel, Israel split into the north and the south. In the north, you had the ten tribes. In the south, you had what continued to be referred to as Israel. It was the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They had control of Jerusalem. Uh, God began through the prophets to warn Israel of their pride and their arrogance and the stench that was coming up before him, that he was going to deal with them in discipline. In 722 BC, God raised up a wicked people, the Assyrians, and they basically stormed through the north of Israel and took the northern 10 tribes into captivity and they were done away with. 
Then about a hundred and some odd years later, it always is weird going backwards. So from 722 to 586 BC, you do the math, subtract however many years that is. It's like a hundred-ish. I went to public school. And, uh, and so a short time later then, God raised up the Babylonians, another ruthless people. Uh, this people under the helm of Nebuchadnezzar came in and seized Jerusalem. This is where we get the book Daniel from. Daniel was taken into captivity. Israel was basically demolished as a nation. Uh, they were taken into captivity for 70 years. At the end of the 70 years, a, a group of the remnant of, uh, uh, for Israel, from Israel basically got permission to go back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. And it was during that time as they were rebuilding the temple that they started to identify with the tribe of Judah, which is where the term Jew comes from. And so Judah literally means Yahweh or God be praised. It was a, a, a this was a, a positive term. This to be called a Jew. It's like some people write their name. So and so comma PhD that they want that title associated with their name and when we go through these however many verses especially the first four verses 17 through 20 they're very positive and i've been i'm sort of been tossing and turning this week how do these fit because we know where paul is going is romans three twenty three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god but in these first four verses as he calls out the jew yahweh god be praised I imagine the Jewish people, as they read these words, sort of shoulders going up, chin up, national pride beginning to take over. I even see a couple tears forming in some of their stoic men, kind of like if you see me at a ball game when when the national anthem starts going, we become, yes, God bless America. That's not even the national anthem, you know, but home of the brave and all that other stuff. You know, we get stoic. And so Jew was not something bad. This was something they were proud of. Uh, You know, I can't, I almost want to give a homework assignment to the people going to Israel and all of us, but it's kind of blurry. Like in understanding Jewish culture, one of the great plays out there, I love it. Fiddler on the Roof. He does an amazing job like that. Whoever wrote that kind of showing Jewish culture and and. Uh, the, the stubbornness of the Jewish people last last service, I said that and Scott looked over to Mary and I'm like, you're that's dangerous ground. He looked over to his wife who comes from a stubborn background. The Jewish people are very, very, very stubborn. It's a good thing. I'm not saying it in a bad way. For the group that flies over to Israel, when we land at the airport and we make it out, one of the first things I'm going to tell them is that we landed in a miracle. Because when God did away with Israel, when the nation dissolved in 586 BC, it was over 2,000 years before the nation reemerged and is now a dominant world power. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a total miracle that, that Israel as a nation exists today. And it's partly out of the stubbornness. And the first song on Fiddler of the Roof is tradition. And he, Octavia, I think is his name, or something like that, Octave or Octave or whatever. This is right. I don't even know half your name, so don't, don't hold me accountable for some play's name. But he starts singing about tradition. And he goes through about certain things. And, and, 
And how do we know what mama's supposed to do? And he says, because of tradition. And how do we know what papa's supposed to do? Because of tradition. And how do we know what our daughters are supposed to do? Because of tradition. And what do we know about our sons and the so of and, and he sings and there's this great pride of tradition. Because tradition is, is what holds them as a people together. And the whole play is about his daughters. Well, I don't like watching as a father of daughters now. About how slowly they start breaking tradition. And he sees them deteriorating as a people. And it worries him. And Paul is a Jewish man who loves his Jewish brethren. And he knows the tradition more than any of them. And he loves their Jewishness. But I see Paul like me with with Catholicism. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I I love the Catholic Church. I I love Catholics. Even to this day, if I if I walk into the Catholic Church, man, it, it's like I go back in time to when I was a little kid. I know about the water. I know about genuflecting. I know the whole routine of the whole thing. I feel very comfortable in that setting. But because of my great love for Catholics and, and now seeing the word, sometimes I, I get a little harsh towards towards the Vatican. I, I get a I get harsh when their teaching conflicts with what the Bible says. It's not out of love. It's out of great love. And I think that this is the heart of Paul. And he begins for you who bear the name Jew. They would proudly raise up. They're not hiding for fear of anything. They're proud of their Jewishness. And so from here, he's going to list a number of things connected to, the, uh, to Judaism. All of these things are the present active indicative, all of the verbs that follow in these four verses, which the significance of that means that, that this is like an, an active. He's talking about these things in the present tense, that they're actively holding to and clinging these things, which are very positive. Each one of them is sort of marked by an and. So I see and rely and boast and know and approve and are confident. So there's all of those things that sort of connect the thought of what he's saying and working through each one. The first one, those of you who call yourself Jew and rely or instructed upon the law. I would see them distancing themselves from the hedonist, from the moralist, the moralist who has his views, but they're not grounded in anything. The Jew would say that they are, they rely, they depend upon the law. The law is not a bunch of rules and regulations that man came up with. If we go back to Exodus chapter 19, to God preparing Israel and, and Moses to receive the law. And then in chapter 20, the giving of the law. We often think of the Ten Commandments that come from that. But there's somewhat, somewhat, there's 613 countable commands in the Old Testament. There were a lot of commands. And these commands that weren't given, it wasn't that they had a, a quorum of, of nine Jewish men that said, well, let's kind of think through some rules. Thou shalt not murder. Yeah, I think that's a good rule. Let's, uh, we'll you know, Johnny over there, he always is against everything. And so he's not for it. But we have a consensus. Let's let's say that this is a good rule that we should follow in the Ten Commandments. That's, it didn't come from man's wisdom. 
They pre- Moses was prepared that when he sees the sign, he's to go up Mount Sinai. There'll be a cloud there. He's going to go there. He's going to encounter God's presence. And that God from heaven, his very hand is to write out the commands of the law directly from God. This is super special. This was great pride that the Jewish people had. They were Jewish. They were instructed of the law, which leads into the next point. And they boast or brag in God. They were very proud of the law because God gave them the law. You know, I'm often guilty or I was. I don't think I'm as bad as I used to be. But I'm very much a patriot. And I love sort of sometimes challenging people's patriotism. And I kind of have, when you're a Navy SEAL for 12 years, you kind of have like a trump card. It's like, tell me I'm not a patriot, you know? Like, what'd you do? <laughs> no, I never served. I'm like, okay, so I, I, I have some credibility when it comes to patriotism. But God began to, to chip away this. I, I hate to break it to you guys, but the United States isn't mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere. <laughs> Sorry, Albert. Neither is Mexico. So he's like, you know, no, like, or Spain or any other great countries. But what I do see is Israel all throughout. And I see that all nations will be judged on how they treat Israel. There's Israel. Israel was given the law. They were proud of this relationship. They boasted in God that they were the called out ones, the selected ones. And they know his will. He continues, they know his will because they have the law and knowledge of his will that they have this, this intuition. They have the knowledge of what God wants. It's not a guessing game. They had what God revealed to him and God himself gave it to them. So they boast in this great God. They know God's will. He goes on to say that, that and approve things that are essential, be instructed out of the law. So we see that as they look at life, as they look at nations, as they look at people, because God has given them the law and they rely upon the law, they boast in God who gave it to them. They have knowledge of God's will that because of this information, they're able to discern sort of right from wrong. There's no guesswork. God disproves this. God is not happy with this. God likes this. They have discernment. But they also have wisdom or the ability to apply this knowledge as they live out their lives, being instructed out of the law. So as the Jewish person or the nation of Israel is walking through life, they're faced with decisions. They say, you know what? This pleases God. This displeases God. I'm not going to follow this one. I'm going to go after the thing that God wants. If you read the Old Testament, straight through, this is what it sounds like. God blessed the people of Israel. He gave them instructions. They walked. They strayed from what he said, so God disciplined them. Then they walked with God again. It's this never-ending cycle of obedience, disobedience, God correcting, them walking back in obedience. This constant cycle. And the reason that they had this is because they were able uh, to approve the things essential and being instructed out of the law. He goes on in verse 19. Speaking of the Jews still, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment 
of knowledge and truth. That's a mouthful. But basically because God gave them the law, they're boasting in God, they have knowledge of his will, they have discernment, and they know how to apply the law. God has entrusted them not to hoard it to themselves, but to look outward, that they're a guide to the blind, that they're a light to those who are in darkness. They're a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law of the embodiment and of the truth. So, so there's this picture that there's this great responsibility upon them. And they would draw back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis, such a key book in, the, in understanding the whole Bible. We have to understand Genesis to understand the whole. So they would go back to Genesis chapter 12, where God makes his great covenant with abraham he says you're to leave the land i'm gonna i'm gonna bless you and through you all nations will be blessed plural and then as this unfolds in genesis chapter 15 this this covenant is basically made and and in this this picture of this covenant in genesis chapter 15 it's God tells Abraham to go get a number of animals. Like, I forget what they are, like a goat. I don't think there was a pig. Obviously not a pig. They were like, that was not a good one. But maybe like a lamb, if a lamb's different from a goat. I know a dove was there. There's a number of animals. So Abraham's getting all this stuff. And he knows what all this stuff is for. And he starts getting a little bit concerned. Because what's going to happen is they're going to find a spot in a mountain where the mountain, two mountains come together and form a valley. And then he's going to be told to to cut the animals in half, lay one half on one side and one half on the other side all the way down, and then the blood will bleed into the center and make a pool of blood. Now to explain this, Larry's my target to come up. I used Joel during the last service, but I need to explain this. So Abraham gets nervous because he understands what's going on. I just want you to stand right there. Larry should be nervous because he messes with me all the time. But this is actually a teaching opportunity, so... So if I wanted to buy a car from Larry, but I needed to make payments, I said, hey, Larry, I really like your car. Uh, will you sell it to me for $10,000? I'll make monthly payments for three years. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Did everybody get that? No, 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 no. <laughs> so we would sign a contract or we would do something. We'd shake hands and we'd, we'd look at each other. That would be okay. What they would do during that time is they would cut the animals and the animals would be dead on each side of us. The blood would go between us. What we would then do is we would then walk to the other side. We'd kind of shake hands possibly along the way. We do this like three times. And what this is saying, as we're walking through, it's saying, well, yeah, we did three. Larry knows how to count. (laughs) I was trying to pull a fast one on him. So as we're walking back and forth, what's happening is, is the blood of the animals is getting up to our ankles and is getting their blood on us. And so what we're saying, you can sit down, Larry, is what we're saying is as we're passing one another, we're saying, if I break my side of the obligation, if I don't pay back what I said I'd pay for your car, then may this be my blood on the ground. And if your car breaks down on me, or whatever thing we agree upon, and you don't fulfill your side, then may this be your blood on the ground. And so Abraham, understandably, gets a little bit, uh-oh, I know what's going on here, and I certainly don't have what it takes to fulfill my side of this commitment or covenant with God. And so leading up to this, what happens is God puts Abraham in a deep sleep. And then God is the only one that walks through that, that, that blood pile. 
And what God is saying is, I'm taking both sides of the contract. It's not up to Abraham to fulfill it. It's totally up to me. I'm going to maintain it's my trustworthiness. It's my reliableness. And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And Abraham's a significant player in Romans. As we get to to Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to go back to that story. And he'll say, Abraham, our great, great granddaddy. He wasn't saved by works. It says right there in Genesis that it was because of his faith that righteousness was reckoned to him. He was declared based on faith, not because of works. But they're going back to Abraham. They knew that, that, that God had separated Israel from all of the other nations. They were this guide. They were this light. They were a corrector, a teacher, because they had the law. And they, they were to share this with the nations around them. There's great responsibility when a person is entrusted with teaching the word of God. I can't tell you how, like, teaching this is an awesome privilege that I don't take lightly. I understand that when I stand before God, any person who's passed through this church, the Bible in Hebrews, I don't think it's really fair, but it's not my game to tell God what's right and what's wrong. I just kind of understand. In Hebrews, I think it's 13.7, it says, obey your leaders and don't, like, make their life miserable. That's not the part I like to highlight. But it says, because they're going to give an account for your souls. It doesn't seem fair to me. I just want to love Jesus and teach the Bible. I got my own junk I'm dealing with, let alone being like responsible. And then James chapter three, verse one, it says, let not many of you become teachers. He's not talking about element. He's talking about teaching the Bible, the word of God. My brother, knowing as such that we will incur a stricter judgment. There was great responsibility. But instead of being humbled by this, the people of Israel were boasted up in pride. And Paul, I believe, in these four verses is building a sort of uh, he's playing off of their confidence that that wasn't grounded. And he's going to expose their false confidence as we transition to verse 21. I don't know if you guys have ever had something that happened to you that you were super confident. And then in hindsight, you're like, "Ooh, that was a really bad call. The worst one that ever happened to me is when I was in the Navy, uh, one of the perks about being a SEAL is you get treated special by the Navy. We were supposed to go on a boat for like the six-month deployment. And so the ship left uh, from San Diego. It was all over the news. You know, people are crying. Well, we walked to our plane and we flew to Hawaii. As the boat we were on floated away from San Diego en route to Hawaii, We spent three weeks hanging out in Hawaii, waiting for them to come. Our boat finally comes to Hawaii, and then it leaves without us. And we spent another three weeks training in Hawaii. I don't exactly know what was on the paper, but we were basically living it up in Hawaii on per diem for five weeks. It was awesome. It was a great five-week vacation. And one of my hobbies at that time, as I made it to Hawaii, as I'd really started taking to skydiving, And so I talked to my friend Jerry about getting me a parachute. And so he was with the leapfrogs. And so he had all these connections. And when I get to Hawaii, in the mail comes comes my parachute. And I pulled it out of the box. And I'm like, oh, man, well, Jerry wouldn't steer me wrong. But, man, 
I guess my budget was too low because the, the, in a parachute, you have two parachutes. There's the bottom part that's the reserve and you have the top part that's the actual parachute. They could be the nicest things and mine were very good. But the outside, the shell of it is sort of like the backpack. Well, the backpack looked like it had been sitting in Jerry's backyard since 1970-something in the sun. I'm like, I don't, I'm really not too sure on how, how good this thing is, but I'm going to jump anyhow. And so I jumped all summer in Hawaii. I jumped all around the world with this parachute. It was great. But as soon as I got back to San Diego, I took leave and I went up to Monterey to visit family. And there was Skydive Monterey there. And they also manufacture parachutes and the containers. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to buy a new container so I can look better when I'm, when I'm flying through the air horribly. I, so I buy this brand new backpack and they asked me, when we install it, do you want us to repack the reserve? And I'm like, yeah, you're supposed to do that every so often. So why don't we go ahead and pack the reserve? And so the guy installed the new thing and what he did is he pulled the reserve out and there's like a little bag that goes over the parachute and he runs across the room. And as soon as he got to the end, he was expecting it to fly open. But what happened is he basically got jerked to his back and he fell over and the, the bag never came off the reserve. And he looked at me and he's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, I'm just here watching what happened. He's like, what happened is your, your reserve is a malfunction. It would have not, it wouldn't have opened on you. And so then suddenly before my eyes were those like hundred jumps that I had over the last six months thinking, no, I can just throw this thing together because that reserve's there. That reserve was never there. And, and Paul is about to expose the Jewish people who are reading his letter, who are boasted up in their pride and their position before God, that really their right into eternity was on a, a parachute that wouldn't open. And he's basically chopping them off at the kneecaps and exposing them for their shortfall. And he's going to do this through a series of questions. He's going to ask about five questions that I count in the New American Standard. I don't know if the other translations break the questions up differently. And so he begins in verse 21 by asking them this question. He says, you, therefore, speaking to the Jewish person who in these four previous verses, they were puffed up in their great national pride that God had set them apart. God had chosen them. God had selected them amongst all of the other nations to be the apple of his eye, his his great pride. And he says, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And so he he starts exposing that they were teaching, but they'd fell in trap. What a lot of pastors can fall into a trap of everything from the Bible begins uh, to be sort of a. A lesson plan, something like, "Ooh, I hear that. Oh, that could be really good. I could teach that. It, it no longer becomes personal. It no longer uh, they're no longer the recipient of it. It's merely something to teach everybody else. And there's been times when I'll, I'll listen to the radio and I'll hear something, listen to David Jeremiah. It's like, oh, I, I handle that differently. Man, I can't believe he dropped the ball on that. It's like, Gunnar, who do you think you are? That's David Jeremiah or some other. I think he knows what he's talking about. It's like, oh, yeah, I need to like maybe open my heart to, to receive instruction. Uh, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, Ezra, which is what I think Paul's getting at about this teaching. What it says about this, this wonderful prophet in Ezra 7.10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. And so do you see the order there? As he's this mouthpiece for God. 
And it says that as he taught, the thing that set him apart is that when the law came before him, he sought to study it personally, to understand it so that he could practice what it says. So he's living it out in his own life. And then after he lives it out, that's when he begins to teach. This week, the Christian community lost a great godly man, a man that's influenced me greatly through his teaching. I never met him personally, but he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary by the name of Howard Hendricks. Uh, Those that know him and love him well refer to him as Howie or the prof. And so I have a couple quotes from old Howard Hendricks because he went to be with the Lord this week. And uh, he was he was a man who has influenced many godly men, guys like Charles Swindoll, David Jeremiah. He was the professor of these great men of God that have been used. And he says something that I think hits the heart at what Paul is beginning to expose. Howard Hendricks says the effective teacher always teaches from the outflow of a full life. You cannot impart what you don't possess. If you stop growing today, you stop teaching tomorrow. And so this, this exposure of Israel, they were teaching, but they were no longer living it. The things that they valued were external, not internal. He goes on to say, you who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? He asks these questions that are very, what I call Sermon on the Mount-ish. When Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, he starts asking, well, you heard it was said of old, speaking of the Old Testament, that you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. He says, you've heard it said of old that you shall you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he begins showing the true interpretation of the law. That the law was never designed to save you. It was merely to expose the sin that was in your heart. He goes on to say, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? This one is perplexing. There's a lot of speculation. What's Paul getting at here? Now, a major theme or a major thought on this one is the Pharisees, the Jews, they would have no tolerance for idolatry and And the idol worship that happened. However, for every idol worship, there was uh, trinkets that were sold like miniature replicas of the idol. And they were made of gold and they were extremely valuable. And so the thought is while they would while they would talk poorly about idolatry, they would be okay, or they would envy or they would maybe use uh, the little idols to make money because they were they were good investments. And I don't know if this is the case, but as I'm studying and thinking on this text, when I first joined the Southern Baptist Convention, there's like sort of an orientation. And one of the groups that came forward was Guidestone Financial. I always joke that if I wasn't a Navy SEAL, wasn't a pastor, the next two things on my list are to be a travel agent. I would love to be a travel agent. The final thing would be to be a financial advisor. My dad was a retired, he's a retired financial advisor. I love math when it comes to investing. I don't so much like math when it comes to like organic chemistry and that sort of stuff, but when it comes to like exponential growth and the value of investing and how you do, I love that sort of, when it's like dollars and cents, I, I love it. And I went to this thing about Guidestone and they started talking about their investment program and they said something that was like, huh? And they say, do you guys have any idea where your money's being invested? Like in a mutual fund and that sort of thing. 
And they said, do you, do you realize that you could stand against, say, the porn industry? You could stand against the gambling in- industry. You could stand against the alcohol industry. You could stand against tobacco or whatever. Like, he just listed a bunch of stuff. He said, do you guys realize that all of these things are very profitable and most mutual funds will basically invest in these things to make a lot of money? I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that. And I, it kind of caused me to investigate and I think that might be what he's hitting at, sort of like, well, we'd stand against this stuff, but hey, I'll put my money in this because that's just good financial sense. And I think that's sort of what he's exposing. I don't know, that's just Gunner's thoughts. He says, you who boast in the law, through you breaking in the law, do you dishonor God? And he begins to, to, to expose, like, hey, you teach the law, you pride yourself in the law, yet when you break the law, doesn't that dishonor God? He goes on to say even furthermore, quoting from Isaiah 52, 2, I believe, Isaiah 52, 5, he says, for the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you, just as is written. And so he starts exposing, well, you hold the law, you profess the law, but you're not maintaining the law. And when you do this, it dishonors God. And it strikes me that in this section that God so much, he cares so much about his glory, about his honor. Uh, not that the chapters and verses are any, are, they're not inspired. So a French guy in the 1500s made our life easier by adding chapter and verses to the Bible. But it strikes me that Romans 123 talks about that they exchanged the glory of God and they exchanged it for an idol and a corruptible image. Then here in 223, he says, even though you boast in law, you break the law, and in so you dishonor God. Going to verse three, chapter 23, verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. God cares about his glory. And in chapters one through three, there's this, there's this picture from the hedonist to the moralist to the, to the religionist, and how in all of these things, God's glory is is maligned it goes back to genesis 126 when god said let us make man in our image let let him bear the glory of god and since the fall of man this image has been stained by us a a few years ago for it was like a it was i wasn't involved on like the missions trip but i was on like the planning team that was going to happen in Las, not Las Vegas. It was going to happen in Salt Lake City, and uh, we went to Salt Lake City. We talked to businesses where we could host car washes, and it was for kids. It was going to be this great event. I spent seventy-two hours on the whole trip. Anna was with me, and it was like a. It was one of these. You leave San Diego at four in the morning, and you drive nonstop till you get to Salt Lake City, stopping for gas alone. No, no time for bathroom breaks. So that's a joke, but. We were like pushing on. There were three of us. And on that trip between Salt Lake City and San Diego, Las Vegas is right in the middle. And because we, the trip was not just a road trip. It was very much with this intention of, of, of planning this mission trip for kids. We just looked at things sort of differently. And I'll never forget that trip that, that going there and coming back, seeing mormonism and this religion that mormons are great people they're loving people i love mormons and and this city was so like ideal in many ways 
But going to the temple, or not inside, but to all of the Mormon stuff, talking with Mormons, and seeing sort of this religion of works, contrasted both times with Las Vegas. It just, I don't even know I have words to convey it, but we saw sort of Satan's working through these two extremes, like a religious city and sin city, and that both were were bad in God's eyes. And this is sort of what Paul's doing as he lays out this spectrum. And he says, you know what? You who bear the name Jew, but you dishonor God. The name of God is blasphemed by the Gentiles. We live in a country where to bear the name Christian comes with, with not much thought. A lot of times people will identify with Christianity not because they've identify themselves with Christ, just just because they don't identify with Islam or whatever other religion, and they just sort of default go to Christianity. But bearing the name Christian, which means little Christ, it comes with great responsibility. Great responsibility. That God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that as Christians, those who have given their lives to Christ, he's made us his ambassadors. That that the world sees us and they evaluate who God is based on their image of us. Now, I don't agree at all with that popular saying of Francis of Assisi, uh, preach the gospel and use words when necessary. Preaching the gospel is words. It is words. But, but, our, but our lives matter. How we live matters. Another quote from Howard Hendricks, he says, there's nothing more repulsive as phoniness, in the spiritual realm, that those who profess Christ and have, are, have their axe to grind on issues, it always, I don't want to say cracks me up, but whatever the issue is, almost it always seems like that that's the issue that kind of like explodes in their life that they've been struggling with. When I was coming back from Atlanta after partying all weekend, after becoming a Christian with my best friend, drinking all weekend, I'd finally quit. That church group was behind us. I've shared the story with a number of you before. And he was getting irate at the Christian group behind us. And I was getting embarrassed by his actions. I'll never forget landing in San Diego airport. And when he looked at me and he said, I'm going to go punch that pastor in the face. And I'm like, dude, what, are you, what is wrong with you? And he's like, I don't want to hear the name Jesus one more time. I'm like, man, you're kind of offending me. And he looked at me and it was like a dagger going in my back. He said, you know what? I believe just like you, Gunnar, that there's a God in everything. But this whole thing about Jesus is going too far. And it was like this dagger into my back with a knife turning. And my hypocrisy was totally being exposed. I had been a Christian, and, but, but my best friend had no idea what I believed. And I remember going home that night and sort of throwing in the towel with God, sort of resigning myself to being a Christian. I said, I, I can't go on bearing this name anymore because I don't know what to do. And I kind of remember calling out to God saying, well, I want all of this stuff that's in the Bible to be true in my life, but I don't know how it's supposed to happen. And so I'm done unless you intervene. Well, now I'm a pastor, so he intervened. (laughs) But I remember in that moment, just my hypocrisy and realizing that my life's actions didn't reflect what I believed. And in the process, God's name, his glory was maligned, was blasphemed. And Paul's striking at this. When we bear the name of Christ, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a serious thing. 
And then from the Mosaic law, he transitions to a subject that really means not much to us. I'm just going to read the whole section. He says, verse 25, For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Uh, This is not even a a debatable issue in Christianity. If it is, I want to meet the group that goes around and, and they want to measure each other's spirituality by whether they're circumcised or not. This is certainly not a question that we ask in our new members class. It's okay to laugh. They laughed in the first service. Everybody's like, I can't believe Gunnar's like saying this. Like, but to the Jewish person, the issue of circumcision was terribly significant. Going back to Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14, it was a sign, a symbol that God gave Israel, the men of Israel, that set them apart from the rest of the world. That they were distinct from the other nations. They were God's chosen people. And so to be circumcised was a big deal. But a symbol is only as significant as the thing that it symbolizes or the reality of the thing that it symbolizes. I use the illustration about a wedding ring, which I can never take off while I'm preaching because my fingers swell. I don't know what it is. But before I got married, I had my wedding ring for like a month. And I would sit in my room and I'd slide it on. Ooh, I'm like married now. But I wasn't. I'm like, I'm not married. But I'm like, but I thought if I put the wedding ring on, it would like teach me to like understand what being married was all about. Well, if I wear this, like, this is what being married is going to feel like. But, but now if I take it off, it doesn't make me unmarried. But the thing that's so valuable about my wedding ring to me is what it symbolizes. It takes me back to 020202, February 2nd of 2002. That day when I stood before a whole bunch of people, God and my father-in-law who did the wedding, and I made these vows. That's the reality that this symbol symbolizes. It's not about external things. I love asking the question, why? 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 Anna gets frustrated with Gray or Ellie at this time because she's in that age. I love this stage because I want to know why. And so when I went to Mongolia and they had all of these religious practices of the shaman and the, 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 the blue like things tied to trees and rocks piled up, I finally found a Mongolian that could speak enough English and we started communicating. I said, why do you guys do this? What's the spiritual significance? And he looked at me and he looked at Josh and he said something in Mongolian. I'm sure he was making fun of me is what I think. But, but then he said, you know, I, 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 we just do it. I can't tell you why we do it, because when the Russians, when we fell to communism to the Russians, all of our spiritual leaders were executed. And so the tradition went on, but the content to the tradition didn't make it. So I don't know why we do this. We just do it. And I think that's what happened to the Jewish person or the the nation as a whole. And Paul says circumcision, this great covenant between God, just because you're circumcised, it doesn't mean that you're, you're right with God. 
For the Gentile who walks with God, who lives with God, and he's not circumcised, certainly his obedience becomes circumcision. Now, two ordinances that we do have, we have communion and we have baptism. And I take these things very seriously. I worry about our children. My children are now not because of my family line, but because my my wife's family line are now third generation Christians. There's nothing more troubling or concerning in my heart to the kids in our church that are raised in the church. They begin to know the externals. And in many ways, it's easy for them to get inoculated to the gospel. That it doesn't take root. It's all about external things. One of the things that Anna said I could share is yesterday, talking with Grace, we, we've instituted formal chores in our house with like a flow chart. And throughout the day, last night, Grace walked to Anna and she said, I am not doing chores tomorrow. And Anna's like, oh, why is that? Tomorrow is the Sabbath. And no work is to be done on the Sabbath. And Anna like came to me and started laughing. She's like, we're either doing something really right or something really wrong. And, but it's, it's easy to lose track of, of the things that we do and why do we do it. God doesn't care about the externals. He cares about the internal. And as we conclude this last two verses, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. It's not about the outside. We don't care about what you look like walking in this building. We care about your heart. We're all messed up and we all need help. He says, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not of the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So I see that it's something that's inward, that God cares about the inside. and, And what happens on the inside, it bubbles outward. When we take communion, it's not about anything spiritual or I don't mean spiritual is probably a bad word, but like mystical or magical. When we take communion, when we participate in that cracker and the juice, we're, we're identifying back to the cross that when Jesus was on Calvary and he was nailed to that cross, I say that was supposed to be me. That was supposed to be me, but he did it for me. And when we're baptized, when we go underwater, you, I can dunk you guys. I, I dunk guys professionally for many years as a Navy SEAL. It takes a lot of faith to get baptized in this church with me. I'm real gentle. So when I hold them underwater, you know, <laughs> I take them till they black out. Because that symbolizes death in the old life so much better. <laughs> and then as they raise up, I give a puff of air and a slap on the chest, get everything going again. It's new life in Christ. It absolutely means nothing. In the, but what it's saying is, no, before I accepted Jesus, I was dead. And now I'm alive. We don't want to be like the Pharisees that Jesus confronted and said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but inside you're dead. And this, this section that has so much to do with the Jewish person. That Paul is a Jewish man is speaking to the Jewish person. I want to end with Philippians chapter 3. If you turn there with me. So in Philippians chapter 3. What happens in this chapter. I, I really would like to read the whole chapter. But I'll, I won't. What happens in Philippians chapter 3 is interesting. Because Paul. 
He's no longer the Jewish man speaking to his Jewish brethren. What he's doing is he's showing from his own life the Jewish man that was confronted by God in the same way that he's confronting his brethren and how he handled it. I think that this is the living out of what he's teaching at the end of Romans chapter 2. And he begins with, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you. Paul's like, I'm never going to get tired of teaching about grace. That our, that our condition before God who loves us immensely is not based on our works. It's based on grace. We're so prone to get saved by grace and then to try to sustain the Christian life through works. And Paul says, I'm going to be the safety net for you. He says, beware of the dogs. And this isn't, don't think of Fido that you have at home. Think of the dogs that you see in Mexico that have scabs and are nasty all over them that nobody wants to touch. This was the most derogatory statement somebody could say to call somebody a dog during this time. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. See how this, the false circumcision, that what's done externally, not internally. He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory of Christ Jesus and put how much confidence in the flesh? Zero. We put no confidence in the flesh. And when, when Paul says this, he can hear the people arguing against him. And he says, oh, you want to start getting into who's got more credentials when it comes to the flesh? I'll play that game. And he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone has, else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. It doesn't care who he's going against. When it came to works, Paul would trump everybody. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Of the nation of Israel. Within Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was in the south. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. So not only those 613 commands, everything that the Pharisees said in light of those laws, he lived out also. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, let that one sink in. Righteousness, which is in the law, which means that as these 613 commands are laid out before you, as you begin living them out, righteousness would be to do it rightly. The only person who truly did it rightly was Christ. But Paul, in his understanding before he met Christ, when he says when it came to righteousness, which is found in the law, he says he was found blameless. He thought that he was without sin. On the road to Damascus, when Jesus appeared to him, it wasn't that he thought he was a sinner, but then he found out he was a really bad sinner. He went from thinking that he was sinless to being sinful. And then in verse 7, we have one of the greatest buts in the Bible. He talks about his fine pedigree, and he says, but whatever things were gained to me, do you think his Jewishness was gained to him? Paul was very wealthy. Paul was very influential. He had power. He had prestige. It's thought that he was on the, the fast track to becoming the head of the Sanhedrin that would rule over Israel. All of those things were gained to him. He said, those things which I have counted 
as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. When he looks at his pedigree, the English tones it down. That word literally is dung, manure. All of these things were manure so that he could gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed in his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul basically says, don't count on religion to save you. You need Jesus. We need Jesus. Totally and completely, we need Jesus. And I love it. I told you I wouldn't read there from going on the rest of chapter three. But the very next thing he says, he says, not that I've obtained it, but I press on. I I look upward to the upward call in Christ where he says our citizenship is in heaven. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this word. Lord, we thank you that, um, that our religion doesn't save us. Father, if our works were the thing that established our relationship with you, we'd be in trouble. We'd never have security. And truly, Lord, when we measure against you, we would come to the same conclusion that Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, is that we fall short of your glory. For we're terribly sinful in action and in nature. Father, we pray that you would Help us to truly understand the bad news of our condition, that we're utterly helpless without you. Father, we pray for those in this room that haven't accepted Christ as Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would, Lord, help them to see the bad news so that they could see the good news that Jesus paid it all. Father, for those of us who bear the name Christian, Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to take that name seriously that we would walk humbly with you, Lord, knowing that it's not our own works, but it's your righteousness that's been credited to our account. Father, help us to abide in Christ. May we walk in grace. May we stand in grace. Lord, help us to have your eyes. Lord, help us to see those around us that don't know Christ. And Lord, may we be used. You tell us that we're your ambassadors. So Lord, we pray that you would help us Lord, to speak the gospel when people ask, that our lives would bring honor and glory to you. We know we can't do that on our own. We thank you, Lord, that you haven't called us to be perfect, but you've called us to follow the one who is. We love you, Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen.